Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 177, How Can We Engage Love is Love and Other Arguments. Oh yeah, we're going to do it. Welcome guys to the Hole in My Heart podcast where we talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone, everybody, every day. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and Matt is with the kids. God bless you. Um, I wanted to say he's going to get like extra treasures in heaven, but I can't actually dole those out, can I? That's not a thing I can do. But <laughs> we do have with us the ever faithful and the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. Man, guys, I cannot wait to dive into the conversation today with Rebecca McLaughlin. She is the author of the new book, Secular Creed, and we are going to dive into those yard signs that perhaps you've seen in people's, well, yards, that's apropos. Uh, But they say things like love is love and, you know, science is real and Black Lives Matter. And I don't know if you guys are like me, but I am always like, well, I agree with parts of those. And I know we've talked about that on this podcast, so we're not going to dive into each part, but we're really going to hone into love is love in that argument. And here we are uh, in June, and this is Pride Month, and perhaps you guys, like us, are wrestling with arguments, biblical arguments that maybe your your kids are bringing to you, your students are bringing to you, friends, maybe you yourself are wrestling with them. Like, how, how can we engage um, not only love is love, but like, I mean, wasn't Paul, didn't he condone slavery? How can we talk about this? Isn't, isn't a biblical sexual ethic just like whatever? It's more inclusive. So we want to get into some nitty gritty. And we have someone really awesome today to talk about this, uh, these different arguments. And that person is Rebecca McLaughlin. Yeah, it's not McLaughlin with the f- sound. We got to get it right, guys. If we are going to say it correctly, the UK way, we got to say Clen. Right? Amen. <laughs> All right. You guys, Rebecca holds a PhD in Renaissance literature from Cambridge University and a theology degree from Oak Hill College in London. She is the co founder of Vocable Communications and the author of Confronting Christianity, named Christianity Today's 2020 Beautiful Orthodoxy Book of the Year. Just a small little award like that. And it's follow up edition for youth, which I skimmed through uh, in the last couple of weeks. Beautiful book. And it's called 10 Questions Every Teen Should ask and answer about Christianity. And she's also the author of the book we're going to explore piece of today. It's called The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. What are those claims? Well, we're going to get into them. Rebecca, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. You guys, we're going to get to know Rebecca better and her book, These Five Claims, specifically honing in on one of them. But we want to get to know you, our audience, better and Rebecca with the question of the week from last week. And it is this. We got a ton of answers, didn't we, Steve? Yeah. You guys were excited about this one. Would you rather travel back in time to meet your ancestors or would you rather go to the future to meet your descendants which i have my eyes on you single friends who are called to singleness and celibacy descendants can equal people you mentor and disciple that's the whole regeneration thing of the gospel so rebecca i'm gonna start with you my friend uh what would you rather do back in time ancestors forward descendants you know my my 10 year old asks me questions like this multiple times a day would you rather x or y and she has asked me pretty much this precise question and? and I would a thousand times rather go back in time and meet my ancestors. I think the idea of knowing anything about the future that we don't already know is completely terrifying and horrifying. So <laughs> give me the ancestors every time. 
Okay, you audience members agree quite, um, the most of you actually agree with her thoughts, um, but a few of you deferred. And so I want to hear uh, from you, starting with Steve, which audience member? Does it sound like Rebecca's answer or what do you pick? Uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate with, uh, what Karis said. She said, my ancestors, my great grandfather was black and there is no record of him. I would love to go back and meet him and hear about my family. Mm. Um, so I really appreciated that. I had a hard time making this decision. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, I've got a great, great grandfather who is Native American. Uh, he was adopted by a white family. Uh, and that's about all I know about him. So it'd be interesting mm. to uh, kind of hear about his experience. I think that's really cool, but I actually agree with Angela. She said this. Hi, my name is Angela. I am from London, England, and my answer is the future, which might be surprising for those who know me, and it's surprising because I'm a historian, and so I'm always diving into and researching the past, so you might think I would be inclined to go into the past, but it's actually not true. And it's not true for a related reason, in fact, because as a historian, even though I reflect on the past quite frequently, I also spend some time reflecting upon the present and how the present is going to be interpreted by future historians. So I can think about the past, I can think about the present, but what I can't do is think about the future. And sometimes I even have this sort of fear of missing out with regard to the future. I really do sometimes think about what history I'm going to miss out on because I won't have the chance to live through it and I won't have the chance to study it. So my answer is indubitably the future. I am actually interested in the future as well. I have some fear to be like, you know, Steve, you and I were talking pre-show, like what if it's like that grandma Lori, she sure jacked the place up, didn't she? <laughs> All this generational sin, hither and yon. So I hope it's not the case. You know, I'm working on my stuff, but um, I really am just genuinely curious about what the future holds. And I feel like that's a lot of what I'm doing now is trying to plant seeds into the future. So it'd be fun to see the fruit, uh, Lord willing. Okay, Rebecca McLaughlin. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. So we've been asking every guest for a bajillion episodes. Uh, these, this set of questions, which is this, if the gospel is, I'm more love than I imagine, and yet more sinful than I believe, when was that gospel first good news for you? And how is it still today? Hmm. I'm one of these people who in some ways has a really boring testimony, mm. but as a parent of three children, I love hearing boring testimonies because I want my kids to have boring testimonies. Amen. I, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. Uh, I, I grew up in a, in a kind of complicated Christian family with a, my, my mom's from a Catholic family. My dad's from a Christian family. Um, and growing up, I went to a church, which honestly I would not choose to go to today, nor would I recommend uh, someone to go to where, you know, that an option right now but i was a place where i was encountering um the bible at least read systematically and it, it was very clear to me from, from an early age especially when i was about nine my mom was seriously ill and hospitalized and i had this this realization that there was really no one else i could depend on other than jesus mm. anything else could just be taken away in a moment and that was very real to me then, and, and I think has been um, in increasingly real to me since, actually. I think that's something that's kind of followed me through my life. Um, 
And in terms of particular relevance to this podcast, I also don't remember a time when I wasn't primarily attracted to women. Um, <clears throat> so for me, I very much grew up with knowing that I was a, a follower of Jesus and, and um, knowing that same-sex romantic relationships weren't um, a, an option for Christians and also knowing that that was kind of where my heart was. Mm. Um, so I think for, for a long time for me, there was a sense of, well, is this just kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a, like sad and embarrassing secret about me? Hmm. Um, and it really was a secret. It wasn't something that I, I felt comfortable talking to people about. Um, it, it's actually only been in the last few years as I've decided to talk more uh, about this, both with you know people in my life and, and a little more publicly, that I've, I've seen God use things which felt like just a sad waste in my life really redemptively. Hmm. Uh, and that has been just a beautiful little a taste for me of of how the Lord works in us and how He takes um, the the broken things in our lives and and He uses them for His good purposes. Question: hmm. I know that there's people listening who are wrestling hardcore right now with uh, their desires, their sexual desires, and their faith. And COVID has only ramped up the noise, the, the, the siren call uh, to satiate that desire within them. Was there a moment for you or was it just kind of, this is what I surrender? Like it was natural to you to, at least in the, your church upbringing, to just surrender your version of broken sexuality to the Lordship of Christ. Like, was that just, that's what you did? Or was there a moment or a series of moments where you're like, I am giving it to you, Jesus? Yeah, I think for a long time, to be totally honest, I thought this was just something I would grow out of. Mm. And so it was a, a, you know, a present experience, but not something that I thought would be a definitive experience in my future. Right. And I remember, you know, I remember the mate when I went from high school to university and I thought, now I'm a proper grown up. I'm going to start being interested in, in boys instead of girls now. And, you know, right straight out of the gate in college, I fell in love with another girl. Um and so, you know, that was that was a disappointing moment for me. I think then when I went into grad school, I thought, gosh, I really am a grown up now. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so you're, you're doing a PhD. You can't really tell yourself, oh, this is just something you're going to grow out of anymore. So I think f f for me, it was, um, yeah, a process of thinking, oh, well, you know, at some point in the future, this is just going to kind of naturally evaporate somehow. Um and so it, I think it was a, a process of surrender in, in, in one sense, but almost a process of um, not really reckoning with myself in another, if I'm, if I'm hmm. really honest there. Hmm. Um, and I think what it boils down to for me is if Jesus is who he says he is, and I, I'm particularly always particularly moved by that conversation he has with Martha, you know, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, where he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me, in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yeah. And it, what it boils down to for me is, 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 do I actually believe that? Like, do I believe that Jesus is my life? Because if he is, then no, choosing somebody else over him makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. Um, and if he's not, then frankly, nothing matters any, anyway. Yeah, the, the the more that I've studied sort of atheist and agnostic um, thinkers and, and authors, the more I've 
it's been clear to me that actually we don't choose between um, sort of following Jesus and perfectly coherent kind of secular worldview where everything's you know, roughly the same other than a few religious bits. We actually choose between following Jesus and complete nihilism, mm. ultimately. Um, so so that that's the, the contrast in my mind in those moments and, and believing that Jesus, like if Jesus is my life, if he is your life, then nothing that we could give up for him won't be worth it. And no one who we could pursue sort of in disobedience to him could ever be worth it. Mm. All right. So I know that there's now people like, okay, okay. And they're still listening and they're thinking, well, can't I have my cake and eat it too? Like, can I have my, my desires and Jesus too? And I really want to get into some of those arguments that real live Jesus loving human beings are wrestling with right now. And if they aren't themselves, their loved ones are. And so I really want to dive into some of the arguments that you bring up so beautifully, so graciously, and just thank you for doing that. Just thank you. We just need more of that. Um, but I want to start right now with, I've alluded to them, the signs in people's yards. We've talked about them actually one or two times on this podcast. Uh, can you talk about what signs I'm referring to? Because you jump right in your book talking about them. And then just some of the, the struggle. Maybe there's some internal angst people are feeling when they, they read each of the lines there. Mm. Yeah, in my neighborhood, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I know this isn't universal across the US, but I think for most people I've spoken to, this is this is something that's happening in their neighborhoods too. There are a lot of signs that which will say something like, in this house, we believe that black lives matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights. And then there are usually sort of two or three other claims. So it might be um, no human is illegal or diversity makes us stronger or science is real or kindness is everything. But, but typically in my experience, that those three claims, black lives matter, love is love and, and women's rights are human rights or, or feminism is for everyone is another sort of variant of that. Those three tend to be in, um, you know, on the signs. And what's fascinating to me is that those signs represent really a kind of coalescence of ideas. Um, and it's presented to us as a kind of all or nothing. Right. Like either you affirm every statement on the sign or or none of them, that, that they're, they're all sort of intrinsically tied together. And I actually think that if, from a, a Christian perspective, we need to do very careful work of looking at which parts of each of these claims we do and don't affirm. Um, and one of the most powerful sort of rhetorical moves that's been made in, in recent decades is really to tie those first two claims together, tie the idea that Black Lives Matter and tie belief in, in, in racial equality and justice to the sort of love is love mantra of affirming um, LGBT uh, identity and romance. Mm. And from a Christian perspective, the Bible is actually pulling us completely opposite directions on those, on those two questions. So one of the things I've tried to do in, in that book is to look at how these ideas got tangled up in the first place and why and how we, we need to kind of disentangle them because you, it's actually not an all or nothing um, with the, those two claims, certainly not as well with the, women's rights are human rights, which ultimately, you know, is, is alluding to abortion as kind of being seen as the central plank of women's rights. 
And if you guys want, um, you know, just go back, look at some of our racial equity podcasts. If you want to dive into that one, we haven't uh, taken a total uh, dive into women's rights or human rights, but I really want to hone in on love is love. When this episode airs, it is going to be pride month in June. And so I know, you know, it's everywhere. Everywhere turns rainbow. And I'm just picturing a loving Christian who genuinely wants to approach this with grace and truth, just kind of being like a deer in the headlights, like, uh, is it a rainbow? Is love love? So can we just talk about that one in particular? Because I know it's mm. it's such a quick and catchy phrase and students will just throw it at you and uh, with kind of a defensive but like duh posture. So can you talk to the person who, you know, maybe just got this thrown at them by a student? Love is love. Like, hello. And they're deer in the headlights. How should they think about that phrase? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think from a, a Christian perspective, we would actually want to say that rather than love is love, that in fact God is love and that he shows us aspects of his love through different kinds of relationship. Mm. The the central premise of the love is love claim is that regardless of whether um, you're talking about two women or two men or one woman and and one man, um, that a sexual romantic relationship um, and especially a marriage relationship is just interchangeable regardless of any of those because love between two women, two men or or one woman and one man is, is essentially the same. I think what we see in the Bible is actually a very different picture than that. But it's not the picture that, honestly, we most typically practice in churches. Because uh, I think in churches, we, we most typically actually buy into the idea that romantic and sexual love is the, the only real place for intimacy. And anything else, you know, is a nice to have, but really sexual and romantic love is is where it's all at. And, and maybe, you know, parent-child love uh, comes in as well. So the nuclear family is the place of intimacy. Um, and so, of course, anyone who is excluded from that set, um, and especially if they're, if they're um, somebody who's exclusively attracted to their, people of their own, own sex, um, is sort of being being left out. I think it's actually a, a massively under-biblical idea, because if we if we look at the scriptures, we see um, both an extraordinarily high view of, of marriage, when we see marriage presented as a, a picture of Jesus's love for his church, it doesn't get much more extraordinary than that. But we also see an extraordinarily high view of friendship between believers. And I think, whereas that's not exclusively expressed in same-sex friendship, I think it's especially expressed in same-sex friendship. And you see you know, Paul, who wrote so beautifully about marriage, being a picture of Christ's love for the church, saying that singleness is even better, Mm. not because he thinks isn't it great to be lonely, but we see in Paul's own language, both about churches in general and about individuals in his life, incredible expressions. You know, he says that um, Christians are like comrades in arms, the brothers and sisters of the one body. He calls his friend Anisimus his very heart. Mm -hmm. Be super awkward. And my, my guess is that the average Christian man would find it really awkward to say to a close friend of his, a male friend of his, you are my very heart. Mm-hmm. It's just be embarrassing to us. Or he says he was among the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with her children. And I've nursed three babies and it's a very intimate experience. So to, mm-hmm. to make that comparison when talking about the kind of love that Christians should have for each other, that it's it not in a sexual romantic context, but actually in a, in a context that's profoundly um, intimate, life-giving, uh, gospel-centered, I, I think part of um, our, our, our response to the, the sort of love is love claim needs to not 
only be how we kind of articulate theology, but also how we live mm. and how we welcome people and how we we live as if we, we believe that the local church is Jesus's body altogether. Thank you for that. Okay, so guys, if you just heard that and you're like, well, I can't repeat that. So go by the secular creed and read the chapter on love is love. And she talks about the things that she just said and memorize it. But I want to highlight something. So someone might post something on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. They'll be like, love is love. And our knee jerk reaction might be God is love because that was your first response. What would you encourage to someone who's like, oh, Rebecca said it. I'm just going to say that back. What would you say specifically on social media during this month? How should people respond when someone posts like love is love? Mm. Honestly, I don't know that social media is necessarily our best place, our best place to be uh, expressing views in a, especially in a, in a super shortened form. Right. Um, I, I do think in particular, and this is a work that I try to do kind of extensively in the book, I think actually the the connective tissue that's grown up in people's minds between the love is love claim and the black lives matter claim it means that we actually can't really effectively talk about one without talking about the other Mm. and i think um that in order to i mean one of the 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 key arguments that's made today is just as the the white um 60s segregationists use their bibles to uh, object to mixed race marriages so today, you Christians are using the Bibles to, to same-sex marriage for believers. Mm-hmm. And I think unless we acknowledge that actually the first part of that is true, unless we're, we're willing to kind of properly own and, and repent of that, those of us you know, like me who would identify as, as white evangelicals, um, we are just leaving that, that very powerful argument on the table. But if we look at the scriptures more carefully, we'll find that the problem with the 60s segregationists was not that they were too Christian. It was they were half, weren't half Christian enough. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that they were reading their Bibles too carefully. It was that they were completely ignoring what the Bible says uh, about racial equality and justice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it, if we look at e- even each of those claims on the yard sign, um, we'll realize that the, the soil in which those signs are planted is ultimately Christian soil. But actually... Even this idea of universal human equality, the idea that the, the, the weak and the historically oppressed shouldn't be trampled but should be um, protected, the idea that women are equal to men, um, none of this is self-evident, actually. Mm-hmm. All of this has, has come to us historically from Christianity, and if you pull Christianity out, you're not left with a firmer secular foundation. You're kind of left with a, an abyss. Ooh, girl. <clears throat> I love it. I love it. And I, I hear a million great things but the word repentance it just like sliced me in the heart and guys now is not the time to double and triple down although that is the temptation in the way of the world uh specifically when it you know comes to what you're saying just like the acknowledging yeah we were wrong in the 60s and i'm so sorry and just linking those together there's even you know the flag it's the the rainbow flag and it's the blm flag you can i don't know if you've seen those uh that they're linked together at this point so i just love the no we i want to acknowledge where we have been wrong but because we were wrong there i want to be right now in the um acknowledging well repenting and seeking racial equity across the board while at the same time acknowledging we've been wrong about worshiping the nuclear family in the church and let's just start getting it right as much as we can so that when we meet our descendants someday when that question comes to life we can uh, see something more positive 
So a question that um, I'm sure people are encountering or maybe have just come up with themselves is this question. Uh, How can we respond when someone comes to me and says, your holding to a biblical sexual ethic is harmful, it's murdering, you know, I've heard some pretty extreme words, vulnerable LGBT youth. So your simple holding to it is a murder weapon. How do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got that that question very directly um, about a year and a half ago, right before COVID, when I was, was traveling to speak um, about uh, sexuality at a, a church. And um, there was a protest organized by some local LGBT uh, leaders and I met with a couple of them for coffee. And in the course of our conversation, uh, one of the women said, you know, how do you know that what you're going to say tomorrow will be safe? And very much speaking from that perspective of, of concern for the, the reality that um, youth who identify as LGBT are as substantially more likely to attempt suicide than, than folks who don't. Um, and in the context of that conversation, I kind of needed to answer and say, like, I don't know that it's going to be safe because following Jesus isn't safe because Jesus calls everyone to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Like actually Jesus calls every single Christian to self-denial. So it's it's an important question. The big, a big piece of context that most people have no idea about is the fact that there is a very large body of, of evidence, um, much of the research being done at Harvard School of Public Health close to me here, to show that regular religious participation, especially going to church once a week or more, is measurably good for people's mental health and happiness, uh, correlated with substantially lower attempted suicide rates, both for adults and for, for youth. That actually bringing children up non-religious is, if you if you want to look in kind of demographic terms, is actually substantially increasing their risk of, of depression and of suicidal ideation. Mm. So we have, on, on the broad scale, the reality that, that actually you know, me bringing up my kids in church or, or, or you, yours, um, is meaningfully helpful to them in terms of their mental health and, and happiness and lowering of their potential um, suicide attempts. We also have to reckon with the fact that, especially among transgender identifying youth, and especially, especially among adolescent girls who are identifying as non-binary or transgender, there's an extremely high um level of, of attempted suicide, a, not far off 50% in, in that category, which is clearly something that should be very distressing to all of us. Mm. And all of us should care about this. Now, what, what's unclear is whether, like, what, what the primary drivers of that are. Um, it, it does seem like a, a, a high proportion of especially adolescent girls today who are identifying as non-binary or transgender actually have, have sort of pre-existing um, mental health challenges of of various kinds. It's certainly not true of everybody, but it does seem that there's a a much higher proportion. Um, So some some people would look at the data on on transgender youth um, suicide attempts and say, this is simply because of societal pressure and especially because of people like you and me um, who believe in biblical sexual ethics and who believe that um, God created us male and female, that that even for those of us who who find ourselves very disoriented and, and um, a great sense of alienation from our bodies that it, it's not something that we're called uh, to sort of live into. Um, you know, folks will say we are causing those uh, mm-hmm. those high suicide rates. Um, and I'm certainly willing to believe that, that there are times when Christians have treated uh, unkindly 
um, folks who identify as transgender, that's undoubtedly true. And so I'm not, I don't want to say that that's not a factor. At the same time, I think we have to reckon with the reality that there are a lot of other factors playing into this this picture as well. And so to to simply say, well, if only we could kind of get rid of all this evil religious thinking um, that, that limits sex to male-female marriage and that um, says that actually our, our bodies do determine whether we're male or female rather than something kind of deeper within us indicating um, our sense of, of gender identity. Um, I, I think to say that, that those things are the primary drivers of, of suicide attempts it would be extraordinarily hard to to demonstrate. And I, I don't think it's actually true. Hmm. Okay, next one. So the Bible, this is what people may say, uh, seems to be, you know, my reading of it, moving toward a biblical inclusion of loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. Or the Bible wasn't even aware of that. Paul wasn't aware of that at his writing. Uh, But, you know, there was slavery, and then, you know, Jesus was not for that. Or, you know, there was the patriarchy. Jesus smashes the patriarchy. And so it's like we're moving toward inclusion. How do we address that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 here it, it takes sort of substantial, careful work to to um, unpack some of these things. It, I think the idea that there is a trajectory through the scriptures that becomes more affirming of same-sex sexuality um, is essentially impossible to demonstrate from, from the word itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the The reality is that the first century, um, the Greco-Roman world, was one in which same-sex sexual relationships were actually quite acceptable, um, so long as you were sort of in the right, playing the right role, um, and especially if you were a, a sort of free man. Uh, it was perfectly normal for men to sleep with women other than their wives. It was perfectly normal for them to sleep with their male or female slaves. It was perfectly normal for them um, to to sleep with, with other men as well, in broadly speaking. So mm-hmm. it, we have somewhat different cultural nuances today than, we, than uh, folks did in the first century, for sure. But the idea that um, Paul and the the other New Testament writers just wouldn't really have a a category for um, voluntary same-sex sexual relationships, uh, I think it's very hard to make that case historically. Um, I think when it comes to, well, isn't there a sort of trajectory pushing us towards this? You you have to reckon with multiple New Testament texts that are actually very clear um, about same-sex sexual relationships being sinful. But the, the, the two things that, that really fascinate me, um, especially in, in Paul's writings on this, number one is that pretty much whenever Paul talks about same-sex sexual relationships, he's also talking about a whole bunch of other sins. And he completely cuts off the possibility of a, of a Christian taking a sort of self-righteous question. So in First Timothy, for example, when he names um, homosexual relationships among a, a list of other sins, just a few verses later... He says, uh, this is a tr- trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ died to save sinners if you mind the worst, right? Ooh. So rather than standing on this sort of self-righteous moral high ground, Paul's actually saying, I'm the worst sinner I know. Mm. And I think that needs to be our posture anytime we're talking about sexual ethics as well. Yeah, girl. When it comes to the question of slavery and people will sometimes say, well, you know, Paul condoned slavery and he was against uh, same-sex sexuality, so given that we don't listen to him about slavery, why would we listen to him about sexuality? Mm. Multiple problems with that. Number one, again, if we look at that first Timothy passage, 
you find the sin of enslaving right next to the sin of homosexual relationships. So it's sort of rather awkward, and that, that's building on an Old Testament prohibition on man-stealing. There was actually there was a death penalty associated with the very practice that, that brought um, enslaved people from Africa to, to the U.S. in the mm. first place. So that's problematic. You have to contend with um, Paul's letter to Philemon, which, you know, headline news, if you, if you only read the, the sort of headline memo, you said, well, Paul sent a, a runaway slave back to his master. Like, clearly, he don't slavery. That's fine until you actually read the letter uh, and you find it's, it's Anisimus, who, um, the, the, the runaway slave who Paul calls his very heart. Um, he says to his former owner that he needs to receive him back as a brother and that he should receive him as he would receive Paul himself. Mm. So he's like, welcome him like you would welcome your most respected mentor. Completely inverting the sort of master-slave paradigm of the time. And I think that the reality in the first century was that slavery was completely pervasive and not seen as morally problematic by, by anybody. And, and it was, in fact, the, the, the working of Christianity through Europe that led to the abolition of slavery actually well before it was kind of resurrected in the transatlantic slave trade. So it's sort of interesting historical hmm. picture there that in the New Testament, we, it, it's, it's basically impossible to um, obey what the New Testament says about loving um, our neighbor and to engage in some of the, the practices that have been associated with slavery. So I think it's, it's, it's actually very problematic to suggest that, that Paul um, you know, condoned slavery and certainly um, condoned the kinds of practices we've seen in, in the, the history of the US. Um, and the reality is you know, a large proportion of the early church was slaves. Uh, it was, Christianity was laughed at as a religion of women, slaves and little children. <laughs> so they need to, that's you know, one place we need to, to disentangle. Um, and I think we need to, to recognize that the Bible uh, gives us a very clear um, boundaries around sex, but also a very beautiful picture of, of same-sex love. And we see it in Jesus' own words, greater love has no one than this, he says to his disciples, than that he laid down his life for his friends. Mm-hmm. And I think it, recognizing that reality, living into that reality is going to be part of how we make the case for Christian sexual ethics today. Mm. Yeah, there, that's a whole conversation right there. That last piece that you just said. So I'll be listening to NPR or something, and they'll refer to, you know, laws that are passed and they're celebrating them, you know, for the LGBT community. And it's so funny, because to me it is, that they draw on the heart. They make an argument of the heart every time. They're like, well, and this is why it's good is that people can finally love who they love. So it's, it's, a simile, it's similar to the love is love, but it's this argument of the heart. So if someone comes to someone listening and they're like, how can you prevent people from loving who they want to love and from being who they want to be? And they're mm-hmm. genuinely sincere. How do you respond to that, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, firstly, I think we need to make a, a clear distinction between what we are called to uh, expect of fellow believers and what we're called to expect of folks outside the church. Mm-hmm. And I think we're, we're used to that when it comes to other things. So, for example, I think it's absolutely basic Christian discipleship that uh, people should be um, participating in their local church. Um, you know, COVID allowing. <laughs> Obviously, we're sort of in a very strange strange time but you know something like that or, or um giving generously to the poor or praying um daily and 
reading their Bibles, like all of these things that accord to Christian discipleship, they're not things that I think should be legally imposed on folks outside the church. I, I would not be happy for there to be a law in America that said everybody has to come to church every Sunday. Um, I, I don't think that, that would be a, a helpful thing. So I think we need to be a little bit careful about um, distinguishing between what we expect of believers within the church and, and what we expect of folks outside outside the church. Um, when it comes to saying, well, you know, we're, we're actually depriving people of love, Again, that goes down to whether that is in fact true in our churches or not. And if we are if we are buying the the sub-biblical idea that the only real love happens in romantic and sexual relationships, then we are going to be depriving all single people of of love, regardless of you know the, the reason for their their singleness. And um, but that's not the picture. That that's that's not the framework, and that that's not how we should be living. And in fact, if if Jesus is who he says he is then he's never um, asking us to say no to something out of meanness or because uh, he, he doesn't want the best for us. He's actually, he's actually giving us something even better. Mm. Um, and sometimes that will only be something that we'll properly see in, in the new creation. But I think we get foretastes of it now. Um, I think of the, the, the woman I mentioned earlier who asked me that question in Missouri about, you know, how, how do you know what you're going to say tomorrow is safe? Right. Her partner who was also there, um, she and I sort of dialogued a little bit subsequent to this in-person meeting. And at one point she said on Twitter, you know, I feel, I feel genuinely sorry for you that you will never uh, experience uh, love or passion with another woman. And I texted this to my, my best friend, Rachel, my best Christian friend. And she replied, she's wrong about the love. Hmm. And I, I think we, we need to, to both within our own Christian culture and in the broader society, sort of break down this idea that the only real love that counts is romantic and sexual and actually um, live into a holistic view of love um, that the Bible gives us. Mm. It's so good. You posted this the other day, and I just wanted to ask about it. Why is a high biblical view of singleness critical to this conversation? Mm. Yeah, I think when we, when we get marriage wrong we not only mess things up for married people, but also for single people. And, and likewise, when we get singleness wrong, we not only mess things up for single people, but also for married people. Because if you go into marriage thinking that, that the point of marriage is to fulfill all of your sexual, romantic, and, and social and emotional needs, um, you're going to be pr- placing an extraordinary pressure on that one, one relationship that it wasn't really designed to take. And you're going to be... Um, if, you, if, if you, you're a single person seeking marriage or if you're a married person sort of looking across to, to single folk, you're going to be presenting a, a picture to them of like, well, if you're, if you're not married, then your, your emotional and social and um, legitimate needs are not going to be fulfilled. Uh, and actually, I think that that's, that's wrongheaded. Um, I, I think that there's a, a high call to every Christian um, to be following Jesus in community with others I think for some, that's in the context of marriage, and that's clearly a good gift, and it's a picture of Jesus' love as church. For others, that'll be in the context of, of singleness, and that Paul commends as um, you know, ha- having actually even greater potential for a wholehearted devotion to the Lord, and a, a spe- specific kind of fruitfulness that some people can enjoy. Um, and I think one of the things that's been really um, beautiful to me as as I have kind of gone on in life, and um, you know. 
wrestle with my own uh, emotional needs and insecurities and, and desires and, and, and all the things is to recognize that actually the, the closeness, the real closeness that comes from serving Jesus together with somebody else is precious and beautiful. Mm. And I feel that more, I feel more connection from that with my single friends who are following Jesus with all their heart than I do with somebody who's like in the same, you know, demographic category to me. Um, but is it that there's this sense of like, I, I think that the picture that Paul gives us of being fellow soldiers, mm. develop incredible intimacy, actually fighting alongside somebody, mm. you know, truly having each other's backs. And that is a beautiful thing that we can have, whether we're married or single. And I think in particular, I think it's important for us in the church for married people and single people to be in relationship with each other yes. so that we're not breaking things down into, well, this is just the singles over here, here are the married people over there. I think that's actually one way in which Satan is kind of scuppering us. Get it. Because um, the, the single people have a tend to have an unrealistic view of marriage because they're not hearing the struggles of, of their married friends. Um, and and married people miss out on the fellowship they could be having with single people. Uh, children miss out on the, the models that they could have for both um, following Jesus as a married person and as a single single person. Um, I, I'm constantly telling my children, and I, I, they're probably sick of hearing it from me at this point, but I keep telling them I will be equally proud of them if one day they grow up to um, be wholeheartedly serving the Lord as a single person, as they will be if they grow up to get married and have kids. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think we need clearly from a biblical perspective, we need both in the church for the church to truly thrive and be the beautiful body that's called to be. Mm. I love that. Um, you guys have heard her, our trans friend, Kat, she identifies as trans, but goes by she, her is surrendering sexuality and gender to Jesus. She's around our kids all the time and she is such a stinking light and it was fun. They don't know her whole story yet. But a few, a couple of weeks ago, I was able to say, do you guys know when we met Kat, she didn't really know Jesus yet. And mm -hmm. do you know that Kat has given her whole life to Jesus and she's a new person? And their eyes were big. Our kids are six, four and one. So it's mostly a six and four year old. And they're like, what? Because mm -hmm. to have Kat, who is just a light, Steve, you know her, um, be around our kids. They are... <laughs> They're just getting a testimony all the time of what God can do in a person, even just by sitting around and laughing and eating dinner together. But I'm burned out. I don't know, three little kids. I'm sure you feel that, sister. <laughs> so we need these beautiful lights around us, uh, single and married. Mm -hmm. Last question. If someone listening, I'm sure there's many someone's listening who are thinking again, maybe a little deer in the headlights, but maybe a little less deer in the headlights as it comes to how do I engage with grace and truth and love? I want to love my LGBT neighbor well this month. Mm -hmm. What's a practical thing that they can do maybe this month or maybe in the, this next year, but what's some offering of advice to them that you would give and how they can love their LGBT neighbor well right now? Mm. Yeah, I think sometimes, honestly, we kind of make uh, make a, a, a big deal in our minds in a way that it doesn't need to be a big deal. So we think, gosh, you know, how do I love, like, I know how to love my heterosexual non-Christian neighbor over there who's married to, with her husband and they have their two kids. But gosh, how do I love the gay couple who, um, you know, friends with from work or from, you know, down the street here? It, honestly, mostly just the same way. <laughs> um 
how, how do we love people? We, we listen to them. We, we engage with them. We, where pandemics allow, we invite them over. We eat with them. Um, we laugh with them. Uh, we, we, we seek to, to serve them and show them Jesus' love. And I think, um, I, I do think the Bible calls us to, to quite a, a, a different um, way of relating if somebody's identifying as a brother or a sister um, and is engaged in, in any form of um, unrepentant sexual sin, of right. which being in a same-sex sexual, sexual relationship would be one. Um, but when it when it comes to, to non-believers, I think we were strongly encouraged to be um, eating with and, and um, engaging with and, and loving it, just in the normal ways that we would um, our friends in those categories. I, I think when it comes to the, the specifics, um, you know, part of it will just probably be refreshing to them to think, gosh, she's a Christian who actually is showing love to me. Mm. Um, I, I, sadly, that has not always been the testimony of the church um, in relating to folks outside the church who identifies as gay or lesbian. Um, so I think there's a, there's a power in that. And I think when it comes to the, the explicit conversations as they come up, one thing I tend to say is Christian sexual ethics is a whole lot weirder than you think. <laughs> People think it's weird that Christians believe that, that sex belongs only in marriage between one man and one woman. But actually, what Christians really believe is all about this metaphor of Jesus' love for his church. That's what's up. And, and so, uh, and that the Bible gives us these different kinds of relationship to pictures of that. So, you know, parent and child, like father and child, um, also mother and child. We have the pictures of God preparing himself to a nursing mother, for example, in Isaiah. Um, friend and, and friend, uh, and so so from a Christian perspective, it, it's it's a whole lot weirder, and it's all about Jesus. <laughs> and I think what we've sometimes done, you know, both in the church and outside. Uh, I don't know if you remember the days before we all had iPhones, where you could, if you wanted to take a photo, you actually had to get a camera and take a photo, and then there'd be this like little film that you go and get developed. And when it came back, you'd have your lovely prints or your terrible prints, depending on how good the photography Mix. were. Oh, yeah. And then they'd give you these little negatives instead of black and white monochrome little sort of plastic sheath, which if you held it up to the sun, you could just about see, like, make out the monochrome image that was going to be developed. We too often, we've clung on to the, the negatives that the Bible gives us around sex. Um, and, and we haven't looked at the beautiful multicolored picture. And, and and that picture of Jesus' love for his church, which we start we, we, we start seeing it in the Old Testament as God is presented as a faithful husband to Israel as often a faithful wife, and then it it steps into a new um, form when Jesus says that he's a bridegroom, and then we see it you know in Paul's writings where he compares Christian marriage to the little scale model of Jesus' love for the church. We see it in Revelation when um, a great voice shouts, "The wedding of the Lamb has come." And Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. And that is what marriage is about from a Christian perspective. And, and we get so fixated on the, the little picture of marriage itself. We forget what the big picture is. And, and when we do that, our own, like marriage, it's, human marriage doesn't make any sense. And nor does the, the rest of Christian sexual ethics. There it is, guys. There it is. Rebecca. Thank you so much uh, for your book and for really just teaching us today in how to love our neighbor well, both practically, big picture, and um, just really winsomely. Thank you. Thanks, Larry. Okay, guys, for realsies, go check out The Secular Creed or any of her other two books and find Rebecca on the social. She's posting those things like the question I asked her. Talk to me about uh, singleness, why we need a high view of that. 
We do have a question of the week next week. We're going to be wrapping up this season, which is insane. Is this season four, Steve? We're in season I four. I think so. Yeah. Yep. And so we're going to start season five. I think we're going to take a couple months off. I'm still praying about what to do for the summer, but I think we're going to roll uh, two months, about eight weeks worth of best episodes of the last four seasons. Uh so I want to hear from you guys. What was one of your favorite episodes of this season four? So from last fall until now, just will you just message us on any of the socials or uh, email me at podcast at lauriecreek.com. Man, guys, thank you again to Rebecca Mc, not Laughlin. You don't you dare say that F sound. McLaughlin. Uh, and for all of us here at the Hold My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. <laughs>